Welcome to Stories from the Revolution podcast. I'm John White. This is episode number 39. The revolution that we are talking about is the massive spiritual paradigm shift currently underway in the U.S. and around the world. Paradigm from paradigm shift from uh, old ways of thinking about church and the Christian life to sort of new ways, which are actually the old ways if you go all the way back to the beginning. Uh, in these stories, we are identifying the key elements of this shift. And in this particular episode, I'm going to be talking about the unique disciple-making process that the Lord has led us to in the Luke 10 community. This will be the first of a couple of episodes on this topic. Um, here's some background. Uh, early in 2014, a fellow by the name of Robbie Butler contacted Kent Smith and myself. So Kent is another one of the leaders in Luke 10. And he was working on an article, researching an article for the magazine Frontier Missions. The title of the article was Four by Four Discipleship Movements. Both Kent and I responded, and what we wrote illustrates some of the uniquenesses of the Luke 10 community. So let's first of all talk about what is a four by four movement. So Robbie was suggesting that this is something uh, where the Lord leads disciple makers in birthing four or more unre unrelated lineages of four or more generations of reproducing disciples. This is sort of the Second Timothy 2.2 idea, uh, where Paul says to Timothy, those things you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust them to faithful men who will then teach others. <clears throat> so in that one verse, you have four generations. So it's Paul to Timothy, to faithful men or women who then teach the fourth generation. So that's what Robbie was looking for. Four or more lineages or lines of discipleship uh, going on. So uh, this training includes gathering new disciples in, to form churches, which multiply through the disciples' faithful witness to their families and friends who are far from God and to new persons of peace. Robbie said that such movements can lead to church planting movements, sometimes, sometimes called CPMs, church planting movements. So uh, in recent years, there are a number of these discipleship movements that have sprung up. <clears throat> um, the two that I'm most familiar with, and I'm not really deeply familiar with, but I know something about, uh, one is called T4T, Training for Trainers. Another one is called DMM, Disciple Making Movements. It's also sometimes called uh, DBS, uh, Discovery Bible Study. Lots of initials with all of that. So uh, those are two uh, widely known um, discipleship, disciple making movements. And there are probably others. But uh, these are two major models that um, Robbie was drawn from, and he was asking Kent and I to comment on <clears throat> the particular way that Luke 10 was seeing four by four um, uh, movements. So, and in Luke 10, we can trace many discipleship lines or lineages of four or more generations. Uh, in fact, in episode, I think it's 17 or 18, 
Ben Hamilton describes eight generations of disciples in Australia. So uh, lots of examples along that line. So here's the letter that I wrote to Robbie. Um, I said, uh, dear Robbie, you ask for feedback, so I'll share with you a somewhat different perspective that my friend Kent Smith and I hold in common. It's a perspective that we are seeking to live out in what we call the Luke 10 community. A summary of this different perspective might be expressed in the contrast between a program focus and a relationship focus. Here are two examples of what I mean. Number one, um, implementing programs versus listening to the spirit. That's the big difference. So if I start with the question of how did Jesus make disciples, I find that it is, it is actually, in my opinion, quite different from what we've seen in many of the disciple-making movements today. These movements often have reduced disciple-making to a highly effective, effective in quotes, program with various lessons, manual steps, etc. So the message is simply follow the steps that we've laid out for you. Implement the program as you work with your disciples. Teach this, then this, then this, and so on. But I think that's nothing like what Jesus did. By contrast, we see Jesus's methodology in passages like John 5, 19. If you've been around for a while, you know that that verse, I think, is one of the key verses in all of the Gospels. I think it explains Jesus's ministry in general. John 5, 19, here's what he said. Um, I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself or um, on his own initiative. He can only do what he sees his father doing. So Jesus says something similar to that, not only in John 5, 19, but also in John 8, 28, 29, John 12, 49, 50, John 14, 10 through 14, and John 15, 14 through 15. So it comes up over and over in the Gospel of John. The major, the, the major message here is Jesus of all people. I mean, if anybody could do something on his own, it would be Jesus, right? The very son of God. But he says, no, I don't do anything on my own initiative. I only do what I see the father doing. I only, I only speak what I hear the father speaking. So we think that's, that's the critical idea. So if we ask the question, how did Jesus know what to do with his disciples, what to teach his disciples? We think in every case, the answer is the same. See what the father is doing. Hear what the father was saying. And do that. So Jesus had no cookie cutter program that he applied in every situation with every disciple. Each situation was unique. Each disciple was unique. So in a lot of ways, it's kind of like raising children. You know, each of your kids is unique and you need and needs a unique approach. So if we go to the next question, how would Jesus's disciples make disciples? I think the answer is found in Luke 640, which says, everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Um, in other words, Jesus's disciples would be doing the same thing that Jesus would be doing. That is nothing on their own initiative, but listening to the father, finding out what he's up to. Uh, a key verse in all of this is John 14, 16. This is where Jesus said to his disciples, this is the upper room discourse. He said, okay, guys, hey, I have good news. I'm leaving. 
which I'm sure they didn't think was good news. But he said, no, no, I will ask the father and he will give you another counselor, paraclete in Greek, in Greek, paraclete. Um, paraclete is a compound Greek word, para kaleo. Uh, kaleo is to call, para alongside. So a paraclete is someone called alongside to help. So Jesus is saying, I'll ask the father and he will give you another paraclete. A key word here is the word another. In the Greek, it implies another one just like the other one. So in other words, what, he, what Jesus was telling the disciples was that they were to have the same kind of relationship with the paraclete, with the spirit that they've had with Jesus. Jesus was the first paraclete. And now here's another paraclete that the father is giving. So they were to have the same kind of relationship with the spirit as they had had with Jesus for the for three years. I, I think it's clear that they understood that that's what Jesus was saying. So what are the implications for disciple making for us? It's this, in every situation, listen to the spirit, just like Jesus did with his father and do what he says. The prayer that we teach people to pray in Luke 10 is very simply this, in every situation. So Jesus, what do you want me to know about fill in the blank? How to study the Bible, how to disciple this new believer, uh, how to reach the lost. Jesus, what do you want me to know about whatever it is that we're talking about? Sometimes we describe this as a radical commitment to Jesus's theology of the Holy Spirit. So we listen to the Spirit who listens to Jesus, that's what it says in John 16, 13, who listens to the Father. Every situation is unique, every disciple is unique, and again, it's sort of like raising children. Does this mean that in Luke 10 we never use any kind of tools? Not at all. The difference is that our tools focus on relationships rather than specific uh, reproducible or standard methodologies. We train people to be radical attention payers, paying attention in two areas, two directions. First, our relationship with Jesus. Secondly, our relationship with each other. So we call these two rhythms of attention. Rhythm meaning it's something that we just cycle through over and over again. We want to train people to connect with Jesus and each other on the heart level. Certainly the head, yes, but also the heart. This involves both left brain and right brain training. The starting place of this training is our five-week course, Church 101. Many of you have already taken that course. If you haven't already and you're interested in that training, simply go to our website, which is lk10.com, and it's real clear there how to sign up for Church 101. So, let me kind of develop this idea of why this is unique, all right, and sort of comparing the program focus to the relationship focus. If we ask the question, how do you heal a blind person? We might go to John 9. This is where we see Jesus healing this man who'd been blind since birth. What did he do? <laughs> it's, it almost makes you laugh, right? It says, Jesus spit on the ground made mud and put it on the man's eyes. The question is, how did he know to do that? 
the answer is the same as every other situation. It's what he saw his father doing. Program orientation, on the other hand, would do what? Well, it would tend to want to develop a class on how to make mud with specific steps of how you do, how to spit, first of all, and then how to make mud and exactly how to apply that to a blind person's eyes. So we want something we can replicate over and over again. That's program orientation. Uh, let's, let's think about this in another situation. If we ask the question, how do you reach Roman centurions? Program orientation wants to develop a program to reach Roman centurions. We've got to exegete their culture. How do these people think? What are their values? How do we understand all of that? Then we have to develop a strategy, maybe create special Bible studies for Roman centurions. In other words, it's creating a program. But how did the early church do this? Uh, very differently. Their strategy was simply to pray the 10 to be prayer. That's from Luke 10, verse 2, part B, beseech the Lord of the harvest. And then pay close attention. There's that attention paying again. Pay close attention to what, it, what God is doing and if he wants us to join him in that. And in this particular situation in Acts 10 with a Roman centurion called Cornelius, it involves things like uh, an angel showing up, uh, talking to Cornelius. Uh, remember that sheet being lowered down three times for Peter to kind of convince him about going to a Gentile's house. Point is that it was absolutely unique, never to be repeated. That's kind of typical of God. He's very creative on how to do things. Let's take another situation. When it comes to discipling young believers, the program approach wants to create a repeatable process. You have a new Christian, well, you always want to study these verses, take them through these passages. Every new believer needs to know these passages. We have a workbook for this, fill in the blanks, pray this prayer, and so on. The relationship focus starts with teaching the new believer how to listen to Jesus. And a lot of people, when they hear that, they say, well, can they do that? What if, they, what if they've never studied the Bible? What if they have no background in Christianity at all? Can they still hear Jesus? If you think about it, the answer is, of course. The Holy Spirit is not limited by a person's background. And so we want to start with listening to Jesus from the very beginning and letting Jesus be the guide in how this person is to be discipled. And it will be unique, different from anyone else. For instance, the whole area of studying the Bible. What if, what if we're asking, you know, maybe we're praying with this new believer, let's listen to Jesus together about this question. So Jesus, um, where do you want us to study in the Bible? Let's listen to the Lord about that. Is Jesus capable of speaking even to a brand new believer with no background in the Bible? Uh, certainly, I think so. I mean, he's God, he can do that, right? <clears throat> so what happens if we start with programs, especially with younger believers, then all the focus is on the program. Um, I believe that we must have, as I think Jesus modeled, a relentless focus on listening to the Lord and teaching our disciples to do the same. This must be, and is in Luke 10, central to our teaching and our practice. So to summarize, if we're going to make disciples the way Jesus did, not just developing our own really smart method, but the way Jesus did it, we will listen to the Spirit in every case for our directions. And then we teach our disciples to do the same. It's really very simple. 
<clears throat> in our view, traditional program-centered <clears throat> disciple-making is a major departure from the methodology of Jesus. In the Luke 10 community, we say that our, our entire discipleship program can be expressed in nine words. Listen, obey, or maybe listen, receive, and then teach others to do the same. That's the core of what we're about. So the first difference between Luke 10 and a lot of traditional disciple-making programs is they tend to focus on implementing programs. We wanna teach people to listen to the Spirit and to receive what the Spirit's giving. So that's the first thing. Here's the second way in which Luke 10 is different. Implementing a program versus spiritual parenting. So this is another area where we differ from many discipleship programs. Uh, it's the nature of the relationship that we have with the disciple. You see, our understanding in scripture is that the primary metaphor for church is family or household. First Timothy 3.15 talks about a church as the house, as God's household. A lot of times we say, uh, so we have this very complicated equation that explains almost everything you need to know about church in the Bible. Here it is. And I sort of facetiously say, right, get ready to take notes. This is very complicated. You ready? Here it is. In the New Testament, church equals family. If you have some understanding of what healthy family looks like, then you understand what healthy church looks like. And even people who grew up in dysfunctional families have a pretty good idea of what family is supposed to be. That tells us almost everything we need to know about what church is supposed to be like. So it follows that making disciples is much more like raising children than it is about implementing a program. Another way of saying, uh, saying that, uh, another way of saying that Jesus discipled his followers is that he fathered them. Remember in John 14, 9, Philip says, so Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus' response, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Paul understood the same family perspective as the key to making disciples. We see this especially uh, with the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 2. Paul says, we were gentle among you like a mother caring for her little children. Here's a, here's a man saying we were like a mother. And then he goes on in the same chapter to say, we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, urging you to live lives worthy of God. So the biblical picture of disciplers is one of spiritual moms and dads who love their children so much that they are delighted to share with them, Paul says, delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our, li our own lives as well. Uh, and we always explain when we talk about this that we mean parents in the best sense of the word. So obviously all of us have parents that are less than perfect, but we have an intuitive understanding of what healthy parents ought to be. So it's not, it's not a parents in the sense of those who lord it over their spiritual children, but those who have a passion to see their children grow up in the Lord. So that's why the Luke 10 mission statement, this, this is the core of our mission, is to connect and equip spiritual moms and dads. That's what we are about. That's what Church 101 starts with. Our leader teams takes you deeper into that and so on. So relationships versus program. 
With a program focus, it's possible to see rapid multiplication into many generations in weeks, into a relatively short period of time, even in weeks. But often, the, the long-term fruit isn't as good. Uh, with a relationship focus, that is parent like parents raising children, it's sometimes messy and it sometimes takes a lot longer. But if it's done well, one generation passes on the DNA to the next and the long-term fruit is excellent. A couple of books that we like uh, along this line, which you might want to uh, check out. Here's one. I love this title by Hellerman. He says, when church was a family, recapturing Jesus's vision for authentic Christian community. I love that title, When Church Was a Family. And obviously, a lot of times now, church is not a family. It's more like an organization or an institution. Second book, which has had a big impact on my life, um, by Roger Gehring. It's called House Church and Mission, colon, The Importance of Household Structures in Early Christianity. I've mentioned that book before, and uh, I've said uh, to you, <clears throat> the, the book is written as a doctoral dissertation, so it's pretty heavy reading. Um, I developed about a 15-page summary of that book, which I'm happy to send to you uh, if you will just simply email me. <clears throat> Some of you have already done that. And, and ask for Gehring, G-E-H-R-I-N-G. Just ask for Gehring. I'd be happy to send you that summary. Uh, my email is, is john, J-O-H-N, dot L-K-1-0 at gmail.com. So happy to send that to you. I think it's a, a foundational book in... Uh, shape my thinking about church as family. So I finished my um, letter, my email to Robbie. I said, so Robbie, I don't know if this is the kind of feedback you were looking for. And I would hasten to say that I haven't studied the four by four movements the way you have. Maybe they aren't as program dependent as I imagine they are. Maybe they train trainers to be spiritual parents, or maybe this is the same kind of thinking that produced sort of the mega church movement. In other words, very programmatic, organizationally oriented. Lots of great structure, lots of great curricula, lots of dynamic leaders producing large numbers quickly. But is it really the way that Jesus did it? And will the fruit last? So that's my response to Robbie. Next episode, I'm going to share with you Kent's response to Robbie. 